0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Front Office Features uh, here with Chris Valente. Chris, we have a guest today. We have a guest great i am
1: very intrigued by this guest i cannot wait to hear this story i have done enough well,
0: research and reading up
1: on it i am but i'm ready to hear it from the horse's mouth
0: oh great well our guest today is chris Ruder. chris is the ceo of spikeball uh chris welcome to front office features
2: thanks so much excited to be here
0: uh it is uh absolute pleasure to be here a uh, pleasure to have you i should say so chris the first thing that I see, and you know, we can go back to your history, of school, and all that good stuff. But like, tell me about Spikeball a little bit. I see that you know, you paid like eight hundred bucks for the trademark to like start this thing all over again. Like, how did this even begin? I'm interested in beginnings.
2: Yeah, best eight hundred dollars I think I've ever spent. um eight hundred dollars for the trademark and i also negotiated 100 dollars for the url or for the domain spikeball.com so um that uh two of my biggest successes in life i guess uh,
0: 900 bucks and you're all in (laughs) and uh it's it's a craze that's amazing
2: yeah so i did not invent spikeball i brought it back to life um so it was originally around in 1989 uh, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Knurik, he's the one that actually invented it, um, licensed it out to a big toy company, and they launched it in 89, and from what I understand, it died in maybe in 91, so it, it was only in the market for like two years or something like that. During that time, one of my childhood friends, uh, actually one of my brother's childhood friends, um, bought a few spike ball sets at the local toy store, brought it back to the neighborhood, we started playing, kind of fell in love with it, and Over the years, people would ask us, like you know, strangers would walk up and ask about the game and ask where they could get it, and we're like, "Uh, bought it years ago. We don't think the company makes it anymore. You know, the internet didn't exist exist back then, uh, so it's it's not like you just go look it up. Um, So you know, people were asking us about it, and we didn't, we couldn't tell them where to get it, and we knew we loved it, and you know it took years this happening, but eventually the light bulb went off. We're like, huh, I wonder if we could actually like bring this thing back to life. Um, so that's what we did in 2007. Um, you know, we talked to some attorneys and they said, yeah, there's no trademark. It's been expired for, I don't know, 10 years or something. And there's never a patent on the product. Um, so they said, yeah, you guys can go for it. So, um, we talked to Jeff a little bit and, you know, didn't, uh, sort of, you know, didn't come to an agreement on sort of how we were going to relaunch or how it was going to work, et cetera. So we went ahead and did it on our own and filed for the trademark for, yeah, $800 and, That's um, amazing. yeah, chipped in some money between me my brother, my cousin, and, uh, three childhood friends. Uh, we raised a total of, I think it was a hundred, maybe $115,000, something like that. Um, and we're off to the races. That
1: nine hundred dollars was better than a GameStop investment. It sounds like a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, <Yes>. you guys.
0: <laughs> so, can you can you uh, walk us through a little bit? Where did you get the entrepreneurial bug? Where did it start? How did um, you know from your inside? Right? I think people have the entrepreneurial bug or they don't. How did what? Where did it come from? From you? Uh,
2: yeah, I'd put half of it from my family and then the other half of it my um, uh, displeasure of working at corporate jobs um, huh. so you know my dad was a small businessman he owned a furniture store had some rental units owned some apartments and stuff and my grandfather owned a tractor store and had you know um, my brother runs his own business and so I got a, a a front row seat at what it's like to be an entrepreneur, you know, the good and the bad. Um, But I think the thing that was most attractive to me was they all had control over their day. They got to decide what they were going to do. They actually got to make decisions. And from my experience in the corporate world, um, I didn't get to make many decisions um you know by the time i started spikeball i had been you know and i did advertising sales um i worked for the xbox division of microsoft for about four years back when monster.com was big i worked there for about five years and um you know kind of cool sales jobs but I, I never really liked them that much they paid well and all that but just the, the culture and the general vibe like it never really clicked for me and i think one reason is um I never got to help create that playbook. I was handed a playbook and said, go execute, go sell this thing. And here's your monthly or quarterly quota and best of luck, you know, and they'd give me training and try to help, you know, of course, try to help. And, and I was good at it. Um, I hit my quota nearly all the time, but I never had a sense of ownership. Even though I literally owned stock in the companies, I didn't have a real sense of ownership because I wasn't actually making decisions. Um, so when Spikeball came around, you know, we didn't do it because I thought we were going to make millions. Um, you know, I thought it'd be kind of a fun side project. And I remember I had a conversation with my brother in the early days and I was thinking like, you know, spike if things go really well, maybe one day it could actually afford to like help pay for a family vacation. Um, uh, huh. huh. you know, I never thought it'd be big enough to where I could actually quit my job and go full time. Let alone 39 others. Like our 40th employee literally started two days ago. So I am just Amazing. as flabbergasted as anybody to see how far we'd come. But my idea of success back then was pretty small.
1: When did you guys realize it was a thing? So, like, I, I kind of was reading you we were playing it on the beach and people were like walking up to you and saying, What's that? What's that? And then, but when was that moment that you were like, Wow, we actually have something here?
2: Uh, year one, so in 2008, our revenue was, I believe, ten thousand eight hundred eighty-two dollars. Um, and I didn't have anything to compare that to, so I didn't know if that was good, bad, or whatever. But I was like, all right, it's ten thousand more than we started with, so great. Uh, the next year, I think we did eighteen thousand. Okay, almost doubled, but not quite. The next year, we did, I think, forty-five. And then after that we did like 130 140 then we started doubling and tripling. Um wow. so when we hit $100,000 that's when I was like, hmm, this is this could become a thing and you know, I didn't quit my job. I was running this as a side job for those first 5 years and you know, the company had no money to pay an employee. Um, you know, we spent all of our money basically on those first 1,000 units that we started and to have the website built and branding and all that. Um, But when I became comfortable to quit the job was 2013, so year five, um, we had a million dollars in annual sales with zero full-time employees. So at that time, my wife and I felt comfortable to quit the day job and go full-time. At that time, we had three kids, um, and my wife was home with the kids. You know, I had a mortgage, car payments, all sort of real-world stuff, and I'm like, wait! I'm quitting this cushy corporate job with great benefits and salary and all that to spike ball. Like, really? <laughs> um, she
1: um, said, "Was that her reaction to You're doing what?" <laughs> both of us were
2: kind of like, "All right, let's let's do it." But oh shit! Um, <laughs> and you know, thankfully, I've been meeting with accountants and mentors and people that are much smarter than me, and you know, they had been telling me since a year or two before that, like, Chris, you have to quit immediately. This company, you've got this rocket ship. It's taking off without you. If it doesn't have a full timer, this thing's going to crash. And I was very nervous. You know, like, I think a lot of people look at entrepreneurs and like, Oh man, they're so risky and I could never take that kind of a risk. And I think one thing that's missing about that is we do take risks, but they're very calculated risks. Um, so had I quit my job in 2008 and gone full time, that would be very risky. And I think actually the word would just be stupid, not risky. Um, you know, nobody knew if it was going to work. A much larger company before us had tried and failed. And who are we to think we could actually make it work? Um, but I, did, did, I took five long-ass years of essentially two full-time jobs. You know, My spike ball hours were pretty much 9 p.m. to 1 or 2 a.m., more or less every night for five years, um, crunching the numbers, figure things out. And then I was actually ready. Um, so yes, it was a risk. But if you look at it in hindsight, not all that risky if that makes sense.
1: So how did you, so that's, I mean, we, we talked to a lot about young folks and like getting off their butt and doing something and excuses about time and situations, pandemics aside. How did you manage and balance a life of doing two jobs at once to get this to where it was able to f- finally sustain itself and be able to quit your job? Like,
2: what was that like? I think we all find time for things we love doing. Um, Like, you know, we had some some disagreements with the shareholders in the early days. Like when we launched the company, we all agreed we were going to do the same amount of work um, and we'd report into each other every week or two on what was going on. And uh, it quickly became apparent that I was the one that was the most passionate about this. Um, And the rest of them didn't really want to put in the time and, you know, they'd rather, you know, flip on ESPN or go hang out with buddies or whatever. And while that was challenging at the time, you know, that's fine. If you don't want to do the work, that's fine. You know, and we eventually came to an agreement where they'd become silent shareholders and I, you know, literally run it on my own. Um, But, you know, of course there were days that I didn't want to do the work, um, but they were very rare. Like I remember like sitting at the desk, like at midnight and literally getting tingles up my spine. because I was just so excited about whatever it was I was working on. And, I was making decisions, I was building something, and that was such a foreign thing to me at my previous jobs where, you know, staying up until 2 a.m., rarely was I like falling asleep at the desk. I was, you know, jacked and ready to do this and, you know, engaging with customers and figuring things out, and um, it was like this new drug I had never tried. So um, now balancing it with uh, raising kids, difficult, but the good thing is when they're that young, they're in bed by nine o'clock. Um, so I'm not really, I didn't have to take a whole lot of time away from them.
1: What were you doing? So what, uh, what were you doing at nine to 2am? Like where were you, what were you planning or were you working with customers like a Dick Sporting Goods trying to get the product out there more? Like you obviously were bootstrapping at that point because of the sales. What was your day? What was your night to night? Like I shouldn't say, not your day to day.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like in the early days before we had launched what it was, you know, I'd go, from work, uh, come home, hang out with wife and kids. They go to bed. And then I'd go to our friend Jason Epley's office. He runs a product design firm, graphic design firm. And we'd sit at his desk late night trying to figure out what do we want the logo to look like? What should the colors of Spikeball be? Should they be red and blue? Should it be, you know, whatever. And, you know, we eventually landed on black and yellow. And, you know, he's got this giant Mac computer with a huge monitor, and he's drawing things up on the fly, and we yeah, we like this or don't like this. What should the box look like? What should the website look like? So, um, and this is all stuff I had never done. You know, I, my degree is in photojournalism. Uh, we didn't cover a whole lot of this in my photography classes.
1: No, I wouldn't think so. <laughs>
2: um, but, you know, after we've been in business a few years, um, a lot of my time was customer service tickets. Um, how do you play this game? Um, wait, the net's not tight enough. Or I ordered a week ago and my stuff hasn't shown up yet. Um, So getting back to the customers. In those early days, I also emailed just about every single customer. Back then, we were only on spikeball.com. So we weren't in any retail stores. We weren't on Amazon. Um, And that wasn't because I was so smart or anything. It's just I didn't think anybody would take us. Um, but the beautiful thing is, since everybody ordered directly from us, I could interact with every single customer. Um, so I did, I literally would send an email and say, Hey, Chris, thanks for the order. Um, I'm actually gonna be driving to the post office tonight uh, around midnight. Um, so your spike ball set should show up in a couple days. Uh, I see you live in Boston. Now, what a great city. I've been there a bunch of times. By the way, if you don't mind me asking, how'd you hear about Spikeball? And that last question was the real meat of it. You know, I wanted to personalize the email so they knew it wasn't this automated thing. Um, most people ignored that question, but I think some people answered it just because they're like, what kind of weird ass company has a CEO going to post office at midnight <laughs> to ship my product? Um, that's
1: a personal yeah. touch. That's a personal <laughs> yeah. touch. I mean, like Be- that's like Jeff Bezos is driving down to the, the, the post office to mail your Amazon order. you like, wait, what? Yes.
2: <laughs> um, but that's when I did shipping. There was literally a late night post office about two miles from my house. Our first quote warehouse was my basement. So at midnight or so, I'd go down to the basement. And you know, I'd see however many orders we had, maybe one or two sets. In the very early days, I literally was handwriting the labels. I didn't even know you could uh, print labels. Um, I'd drive my 98 Subaru Outback with 150,000 miles on it to the post office, drop off the two sets, come home, return some more customer service tickets, and do the same thing the next day. Um, And by sending those emails, how do you hear about Spikeball, that developed a lot of relationships. And I got to learn who was buying it, where they learn about the product. And that wound up just being very critical to our success.
0: We talk a lot about one of our founding principles, if you will, that we talk about on our podcast is effort and attitude, right? Um, And, you know, you can control two things in life is your effort and your attitude. And obviously you've done that. Um, was there any challenging times where you're questioning like why the hell am I doing this? And uh and you had to question those things where you had to kind of lift yourself up uh in times that were tougher?
2: Yeah. In the early days I thought I could do our accounting. Um, that was just a big mistake.
1: I can't do that either. I've not even wanna do it. <laughs>
2: like, yeah, I was just So that was challenging. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I had some issues with uh, the shareholders. And again, I call them shareholders. It's family and friends, right? These are my childhood buddies and my brother. And, you know, you're not supposed to do business with family or friends, yet we did both. Um, I'm glad we did now. We all have a fantastic relationship. Uh, We definitely had some bumps in those early days. So those are very difficult. Um, But... Yeah, I don't know. I think in general, I've I've got a pretty good grip on what I'm good at and what I'm not. And um, I think having the degree in photojournalism, or at least just not having a degree in business or marketing, I feel that that has given me the uh, okay to ask the stupid questions. I'm not supposed to know this stuff. I never studied it. I don't have an MBA. Um, So I've in the early days, and to this day, I still do it. I sent probably three LinkedIn messages today to complete strangers just asking if we could get on a call. Um, but I, I do as much homework as I can, whether it be on Twitter, LinkedIn, or talking to friends of friends that are experts in whatever the area is that I need help in. And I'll reach out saying, Hey, well, do you have time to talk? Uh, more than happy to give you a spike ball set in exchange for your time. Nine out of 10 people will ignore it, but the 10th. Will reply, um, and that has been a, a huge. You know, that that was essentially my business education. Um, so, yes, there have been plenty of tough times, um, but the good times about weighed them easily ten to one, hundred to one, probably.
0: So can you talk a little bit about? All right, so you've been building this thing. It went from ten thousand dollars. Now you're at a million bucks. How did your uh, time on Shark Tank, one, I want to know how you got going, how you got on there. And then two, what did, what was your experience like on Shark Tank? You're in the carpet, you know, they're filming you and you get a deal done with Damon, but then the deal doesn't happen, right? That actually doesn't come to fruition if I was reading correctly. Can you walk us through what your, uh, what that was like from soup to nuts?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we, did the, we finished 2013, the year that we hit a million dollars. We actually finished the year at, I think, $1.4 um, 2014, I think we finished at a little over three, so we doubled again. And then 2014 was the first time we applied to get on Shark Tank. Um, I didn't want to go stand in line with a thousand people and, you know, do the casting call sort of a thing. Uh, you know, they, I think they do those all over the country. I had been to some yeah. conference where a guy that was on Shark Tank folk and I pulled him aside afterwards, and you know we just chatted for maybe five minutes after the conference, but we kind of clicked and swapped emails. And so I read that you know Shark Tank used to they had a clause in the contract that said whether you get a deal or not, uh, we can take a slice of your company in exchange for you know the exposure you're going to get on the show. Huh. Um, and that scared me. I didn't want to go on the show because I didn't want to give up. You know a company if i'm not you know slice of the company but from what i understand mark cuban raised a stink on that and he told the producers hey we're keeping good companies from applying on the show because of that clause so basically get rid of it uh, they did so once i learned that i reached out to this guy from the conference and said hey i want to apply to shark tank i don't want to go through the normal channels any chance you can introduce me to your producer he said yep sure hang on a second Emailed the producer. Producer replied in about six and a half minutes, if I remember. Um he thought wow. Spike was super cool and said, We've got one slot left. We think you guys could be the one. And like everything was fast forward. And you know, we did the paperwork and application, and a few weeks later the responses just stopped. Um it turns out the guy no longer worked for Shark Tank. Oh, good. Um <laughs> Perfect. He good. Was dead in the water. Um so we were bummed. But then in 2015, we get a note from somebody else at Shark Tank saying, hey, we, you know, um, we'd love for you guys to reapply. Um, my initial response was, I want to have to reapply. We were already accepted and we were so close. But anyway, we reapplied and applying basically means, you know, staying in your kitchen with a, doing a selfie video saying, hi, my name is Chris Ritter. My company's is Spikeball. And, you know, so you go through maybe three or four um rounds of that and they basically want to see like are you comfortable on camera are you going to just like freeze up and just be a robot or you know from what i understand part of it is you know maybe 15% of it is uh your company and how impressive that is but 85% is how entertaining will you be right um, you gotta, if you're you bored <laughs> people are not going to want to watch exactly um yeah. and entertaining can also mean maybe you're going to be an absolute train wreck. And if you are, they still want you because everybody loves watching the train wreck, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Like
1: the bad auditions in American Idol. They're like, oh, these are great. Bring them on
2: TV. <laughs> yes, yes. So went through a few rounds of, you know, the sort of selfie video and then eventually had some guys help me make a uh, more polished video. And the producers are coaching you through each one because, you know, they want you to succeed. And, okay, Chris, you said this in your last one, uh, maybe clean this up, talk more about this or less about this. and. Um they eventually tell you that, okay, um, we're gonna invite you out to film on this certain date. Um, and like, oh my gosh, like making it to filming, that's great. But then every note of communication after that, they say, just because we invite you to film does not mean you're gonna get on air. So please understand, tons of people come and film and never get on the show. Um so trying to set expectations there, but we wound up filming in, I think, September of 2014. 2014? September of 14, yep. Um, and it was awesome. I think it was Sony Picture Studios in L.A., and we're in one of those giganto buildings, you know, that's a the size of, like, an airplane hangar. Um, and you go in the building, and the ceilings are, I don't know, 80 feet high or something. And, you know, the building's as long as a football field. And the ceiling and the walls are all painted black, like it's this kind yeah. of this jarring environment. And in the tiny middle of this basically giant hangar is the shark tank set. Um, and huh. there's no one thing I remember remembering or realizing like there's no ceiling there. So when the entrepreneurs are standing there, if they were to look up, the ceiling's like 80 feet up. Wow. And you think they're in like <laughs> really? you <know>, conference <laughs> room, right? Or something, but yeah, um, right. And when you step on the wood floor, that wood floor is about four inches off the concrete floor of the building. So it's just this like almost fake living room in the middle of this giant, giant just building. TV magic, right? Just TV yeah. magic. The doors that open, those are not automatic. There's one dude behind each door. And they're like going three, two, one. And they open them together. Like, uh, <laughs> so yeah. <movie> um, <laughs> One of the most nervous moments I remember, you know, they tell you, okay, Chris, uh, once you walk out there, like there's an X on the carpet or whatever, stand on that, but do not say a word until, I don't know if they yell action or said go, but you have to stand there while they get the camera and lights ready. And they said it could take up to two minutes. And you're standing there with your hands by your side, and the sharks are literally 11 feet in front of you. And you're just looking at each other in complete silence. It could not have been more awkward. I wanted <laughs> to just piss my pants and just like run. Um, so you stand there for what seems like forever, and then they yell "go," and then you you know you're on. Hey, I'm Chris Vitter. My company is Spikeball. I'm from Chicago, and you know blah 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 blah. And there's no retakes. Yeah. If you screw up your pitch, um, you know, and it's not like okay, we'll let you start over. Like literally, you're not allowed. So. I'm terrible at memorization. Uh, that was the part I was most nervous about. I actually did jumble my memorized part, but the editors were very kind and made it look nice. Um, oh, that's good. Yeah, they were cool. And then when that ended and the Q&A started, that's when I sort of exhaled. And, you know, I was able to walk in there with some confidence. I, I knew we had a great business. Even if things went terrible, we had already done $3 million. We were profitable. We were bootstrapped and... Things were going to be fine. Um, so, yeah, We I think I was up in front of them for about 45 minutes, which from my understanding, understand is about average.
0: Um, so they take and, the 45 minutes and condense it down to four.
2: Yeah, I think average segments are about 10 to 12 minutes. Um, yeah. But our segment was a little weird in that they came and filmed at one of our tournaments. Um, so that uh, maybe about two minutes of our time was tournament time. Um, but yeah, so it was about 45 minutes all in and then they edited it down to 10 to 12.
1: And then do you, do you had to submit in advance what you were looking for? And then the, the sharks kind of knew, and then you're negotiating right on the spot with like Damon John, or you just say it right there and they, they find out
2: the sharks. Don't find out you're going to be on the show until about 90 seconds before you walk through the door. Wow.
1: Uh, Yeah. So I had assumed
2: when we went out there, like, okay, I'll probably hang out backstage with the sharks and just have a cup of coffee or shoot the shit and just kind of, no, I literally did not lay eyes on any of them until I walked through that door. And I've literally not seen any of them since I left that door. Um, But yeah, they don't know a thing about it. Um, And, you know, they want it to be as authentic as possible. And, you know, I, I know a lot of us are skeptical about Hollywood and is this real or not, but, my experience it was very, that's
1: pretty that's pretty real for reality television that it's actually a real negotiation on the spot you'd f- figure like most of it's done beforehand and you're just playing it out how so what's going through your mind as you're negotiating with people of this kind of business acumen trying to sell your company It, and then you, i know you landed on a deal which you can get to how it fell apart but what's going through your mind at this moment of like holy crap i'm negotiating here with like mark cuban damon john and mr wonderful like how does that even
0: feel like comfortable in that and- setting and like Gronk's up there, and like Mark Cuban kind of laughs at it in the beginning. Like, what's definitely going through your mind at that time?
2: Yeah, it's there. There was a moment where you know you have those out of body where you like feel like you're looking at yourself during whatever the environment is. Like that was definitely going on for a while. Um, but right after I finished the uh, memorized part and Q and A started, um, Mark Cuban literally yells, "I love Spikeball." <laughs> and i'm like holy shit like i hadn't even gone into like trying to sell them or all it was literally just that 90 second description and um i just breathed a huge sigh of relief like going into it the people at the sharks i wanted i wanted mark cuban and i wanted uh nick woodman you know he's a gopro ceo he was yep. a-, a shark um i didn't get either of them but <laughs> at least to start it when Cuban was so, I mean, he was just such a cheerleader and so cool. They, they edited most of that out. Um, really? But yeah, they, that allowed me to breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. i like, okay, this is going to be, and when uh-huh. Mr. Wonderful started asking about numbers and like, I had done my homework and I knew that, you know, when the sharks turn evil or Mr. Wonderful goes mean, it's because the entrepreneur did not prepare. Right. And, you know, literally the night before in the hotel, so it was me and uh, our COO, two of our employees and uh, this guy, Buddy, who is a player and a longtime friend. So they were I was the only one actually talking to the Sharks, but they played a couple demo points. Um, We practiced those demo points in the parking lot of the hotel the night before. And we practiced literally our walk in. Um, And I remember in the parking lot. Uh, off on to the side, there were these rocks that were, there's about, I don't know, five of them that were about the size of a human head all in a line. And we pretended that those were the sharks and we would practice our walk. And I do like the, you know, the shark tank. dung dun, 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 dun. Hi, my name is Chris reeder And if I jumble it up, he'd be like, all right guys, let's walk back. We go back. We must have done that for three hours that night. Um, you know, in an empty parking lot at midnight in LA. Like people, might, if anybody would have seen us, like, <laughs> like,
1: what the hell is this? <laughs>
2: um, but all of that, you know, and you know, in the months leading up to it, I'd literally record my voice on my phone doing the pitch, and that is what I listen on my walks in the neighborhood or two from work, and just wanted it just in my head. Um, so I think that allowed me to go into the show with a bit more confidence than I would have otherwise. Um, but it was a surreal experience. Um, but all the sharks were super cool. Like uh, All their feedback for the most part was fair. And um, yeah, it, it was fun. It was nerve wracking, so, but fun. So you get a deal with Damon and
0: John, right? For like 20% of your company for 500 grand. Yep. How, so you shake hands, you hug the whole thing. Everyone's excited. Then the, like, what happens next where you know, I read on the website that it kind of fell apart, right? So how does that work? How does it go from hugs to kind of falling apart?
2: Yep. So what happens on the show is a handshake. So neither side is legally bound to do the deal. Um, now, of course, I had every intention of doing the deal. And when I did the deal with with Damon, you know, he had created FUBU. And back in the day, that was an amazing brand, crazy success, started from absolutely nothing that is the brain I wanted to pick into. Um, but to answer your question before I get to sort of how it fell apart at right after you film, uh, you know, you leave the set, and then you go back into this like kind of waiting room. Um, and a psychiatrist comes and interviews you. Um, really? and yeah, I was like, wait, what? Um, yeah, you know, it's a very emotional time. Right. And if things don't go right, um, they want to make sure you're not going to jump off a building or something. Um, so Holy I had buckets. to sign a document saying, yes, I, Chris Reuter, I'm feeling good and all this other stuff. You know, of course they need to make sure they're covered. That, yeah. It's the waiver. Uh, yeah. Get, get that waiver signed before they yeah. leave the lawyers. So psychiatrist leaves and then in comes, uh, one of Damon John's, Damon John's representatives. Uh, she was super cool. Uh, but she handed me this document and said, Hey Chris, if you wouldn't mind sign this and then we'll be in touch. And, It was, you know, she said it was a no shop agreement, uh, which, you know, means they don't want me trying to go find a better deal before we actually close the deal with Damon. Um, so I was like, you know what? I'm not comfortable signing that now. We'll be, I'm happy to sign it, but my attorney needs to review it first. So, um, so I don't know, I leave, uh, uh, we go uh, maybe a month, six weeks go by and we don't hear anything. So we'd heard the woman said, okay, we'll be in touch with you, you know, Damon John's team. I never had his email address, his phone number, or anything, so I didn't even know how to get a hold of him if I wanted to. Um, but eventually, I hear from him. Uh, we get on a phone call, and we get on a couple calls, and I learned that his interest in Spikeball is in licensing. Um, so he says, "Like oh, Chris, i got friends at Marvel Comics. Let's make a Spider-Man branded Spikeball set." Um, I'm like, eh, doesn't quite feel right. I'm hoping to build our own brand. I'm not looking to, you know, put somebody else's logo on it and you know, kind of get a quick, quick buck. And um, so he had a few other ideas like that, but none of them that quite aligned with what I was looking for. Um, and like some relationships happen, you never really break up, you know, you just kind of stop calling each other. Um, so that's, that's what happened with us. So, Interestingly enough, the deal was dead about six months before the show actually aired. Huh. Um, so, you know, we filmed in September or October of 2014, but it didn't air until May of 2015. Oh, uh, wow. So you're sitting
1: there watching the show, knowing that you make a deal, but the deal doesn't really happen. <laughs> yeah. happen and we, yeah, we had a
2: huge party at our office and friends and family. And I had to sign a document with the producers saying... Um, not I wouldn't say a right. word yeah. of what happened, and if I did, I was personally responsible for a five million dollar fine.
1: Okay. Yep. Um, oh, yeah, that,
2: that's a good way that'll to make you, know, it. I can keep my mouth up shut for up. That. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Yep. Um, so what we're
0: Yeah. What were what the, the show happens? You have this big party, like then you know you, you hear sometimes like sales just go through the roof right after that. Is that what you've
2: experienced as well? Absolutely. And the, the tricky part is, you know, when we call we manufacture in China. So from the time we call the factory and say we need product, it's about 90 to 100 days for it actually to show up at the warehouse. And the producers at Shark Tank said, you know, at that day that I left, they said, hey, thanks for coming. If your show is going to air, we'll call you two weeks before it airs. If we never call, it's not going to air. So I basically spent the next like six, seven months just staring at my phone, willing it to ring. But we also had to tie up nearly all of our money and inventory because we had to get our warehouse full immediately to prepare for that phone call. Because we only had two weeks to get ready. So we ordered as much inventory as we could afford and just sat on it and waited and waited. and, of course, we were the season finale. We were the final segment of the season finale. So they couldn't have waited any longer to give us the call, um, you know, because they don't – an option of us going into the next season, they just don't do it. So if you don't air that season, you're, you're out. Um, but, you know, we got the call. We were on. It was season finale. You know, ratings were amazing. We got, sales went through the roof. And a big thing was we got um, a lot of inbound from retail stores wanting to carry us. So, you know, maybe six months before we even filmed, we got an email from Dick's Sporting Goods out of the blue saying, hey, we'd like to carry your product. Um, So they came to us, which I remember just being floored, like, wait, no, I'm supposed to call you. I'm supposed to beg and plead. And you're supposed to be like, be this big, bad company and beat us up on price. And they were super cool. And, you know, we, we started with just a few stores and eventually went to all of them, but Um, we were getting, I think we were just getting ready to launch in Dick's at the time of filming. And it was, I remember asking the Dick's Sporting Goods lawyers, like, am I allowed to mention that we're getting ready to go in your stores on Shark Tank? And trying to get a yes for that question was like pulling teeth. teeth, Eight million people are going to watch this. and I'm going to be talking about your stores. This is nothing but good. Oh, we're not sure about that. And.
1: Lawyers, they make all the fun, right? Take all the fun out of marketing. Yeah, literally their job. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's talk about spikeball because I mean, in the the amount of people who play this, I mean, Gronk is involved in this. The beauty of the product is you anyone can play and you can play it anywhere. I mean, Mount
2: Everest, right? Someone's played a game <laughs> of spikeball. How the hell did that happen? Um, God, I'm blanking on his name right now, and he's gonna kill me, but. Um... I didn't even know him at the time. I got, I think, an email out of the blue. He had he sent me a photo of the Everest photo. Um, um, I'm blanking on his name, but his spike ball team name was Danger Zone, which is a play on the Top Gun, Top Gun. Uh, the volleyball scene, right, <laughs> they're wearing jean shorts and no shirts and cheesy high fives. That's what these guys – they'd roll up – Seth is his name, Seth Richmond. Um, he, they'd roll up to spike ball tournaments – Full, like, uh, mirrored sunglasses, dog tags, no shirt, and tight jean shorts. Uh, just being total jokers. And so that's Seth. But he emails me this photo of him playing at Base Camp Mount Everest. I think he's, like, at, I don't know, 16,000 feet or something. Um, and I reply to him, like, holy shit, these are amazing. What? How would you get this? Where are you? And he was on this, like, go-around-the-world trip. Um and brought his spike ball set with him everywhere. So he sent me a few few more photos. One, he's like in the middle of a desert somewhere, and he's got his spike ball bag hanging from the side of a camel. Um That's and,
1: how easy it is to bring it that, that, hey, that's how easy it is to bring anywhere. You bring it anywhere he went on a round the world trip and he brought spike ball with him. Seriously,
2: like if you're thinking of what you're gonna pack to climb Everest or to go to base camp, like of course I wanna add another three pounds and bring a spike ball set with me. <laughs> Um, but that was like a first step in, you know, we never could have paid a photographer and set up something that's anywhere near as what beautiful as beautiful as what Seth did just in the wild on his own. And that I think is a lot of why our brand has resonated with uh so many people, because it's almost all organic, authentic, and rarely are we the ones taking the picture or making the video. We're trying to amplify just the badass stuff that our community is posting on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, wherever. So we want them to be the stars. If we can help sort of amplify what they're doing, then hallelujah. Um, And yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of people can just see that humanity in the posts that we do. Um, And I want everybody to know there's actual human beings working at Spikeball. And it's not just this company that makes this product. Um, there's a lot of personality in what we do, which I think, again, attracts people.
1: That's a, that's a great segue, Chris. So you guys are unique in that you make the product, but you also run the sport, right? So that'd be like if Rawlings was running baseball, which they're not. Baseball runs baseball, but they buy the product. So how do you manage the, the balance between running the actual sport and tournament and also then being the product as well? Like, is there a fine line that you have to make sure you don't cross? So like, how do you guys discuss that internally and, and keep that balance going?
2: Yeah. Historically, it's been pretty murky, but we now have some nice formal practices in place that are allowing the separation of the two. So one thing we had to do was come up with a name for the sport. So most people think the name of the sport is Spikeball. No, Spikeball is a company that makes equipment for the sport of round net. It's literally a round net, right? Um, So years ago, I... um, was watching an episode of 60 Minutes and they had uh, the CrossFit founder on, and for some reason, the CrossFit attorney was on as well. And they were saying how much they learned, how much, or they shared like how much money they were spending to defend the crossbar, cro- crossbar, CrossFit <laughs> trademark. <laughs> The CrossFit. Trademark. By the way, we're yeah. just a
0: bunch of th- we're three like eight year olds right here because we just laughed at fart and it's funny. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> Got to put in that fart joke, right? Well, we're on uh, brand. So you know, a lot of people think CrossFit is the name of a sport. Like, no, it's a legally trademark trademark term, and they literally spend millions of dollars going after people every year for violating it. Um, another mentor I had early in the day was this uh, woman, uh, Mary. Yeah, I'm blanking on her last name, but she was the former CMO at Rollerblade uh, back in the 80s when they first exploded. And everybody started using the name Rollerblade in a generic term. And they were at risk of rollerblading becoming a generic term. So anybody could have made a, quote, rollerblade product. So Mary is the one that coined the term inline skating. So oh, Rollerblade is not a sport. It, you know, But to this day, people still call it Rollerblade hockey. Right. But roller, she created that that separate name, the generic, like nobody owns the, the rights to the word baseball, basketball or football. Right.
1: Right. Those are
2: all very descriptive words of those sports. So my mind got spinning like, OK, the mission of the company is to create the next great global sport. We don't want to just forever be this fun little backyard game. We want to become a legitimate sport. OK, if we want that, we need a generic name. We need a name for the sport. It cannot be swipe ball. So I just started thinking like, okay, what's unique to our equipment or our sport that most others don't have. And eventually came on round net. And right now when you think of that, okay, that's a pretty boring name. Like it's descriptive and there's really nothing that gets me going, but that's the way people felt when they first heard the name baseball as well. When they first heard the word basketball, like basket, literally a peach basket nailed to a post. Um, But look, like nowadays, when you think of the word basketball, it elicits such emotion and NBA and superstars. And so Roundnet is the name of the sport. Earlier this year, the International Roundnet Federation was created. Um, We have dozens of countries that are uh, involved in it. We, unfortunately, for the second year in a row, have had to delay our world championship. Um, It was supposed to be in Belgium last fall over Labor Day. We started registration. We had over 20 countries registered and then COVID hit. Um, we had to cancel it. We thought we were gonna be able to do it later this year. We're not gonna have enough time to plan. We had to cancel it. Um, but there's different you know, legal nonprofits popping up all over the world. Um, and we as a company, we're not the ones creating them. It's hardcore fans in their local communities. Um, And we, of course, want to partner with them. Any help we can give, you know, I kind of sometimes consider Spikeball as like, you know, the rich uncle, like, okay, you're some scrappy kids trying to get a game going and you may not have the money needed for A, B, or C, or you may not have enough Spikeball sets for your group. Like, we're more than happy to help uh, you build your community, but we're not going to be the ones that are, you know, local doing it, but we want to help you do it. So the IRF has an independent board with, yes, there's one spikeball employee on it, but it's made up of a handful of other people from different countries all over the world. And it's still murky, but we're doing every, everything we can to separate the two because uh, that, that's needed in order to become a legitimate sport. So
1: you want to see this one day in the IOC and in the Olympics if you're going international like that? do you like? I mean, it seems like from a game and perspective that anyone can play from an athlete that this one day could be an Olympic sport.
2: We've had numerous conversations with the USOC. We've talked to the IOC. We've got a ton of work to do, but we are studying, like, you know, breakdancing recently became uh, an official Olympic sport. Really? And I didn't know that. That's, that's they crazy. They made it through pretty quick, and we're like, wow, like, normally I think it's like a 15-year period or whatever, but we learned the way that they got through, they didn't create an entirely new division they joined the like dance federation or whatever the international federation for dances. Um, and they snuck in with them and that's how they were able to get in so quick. Um, uh, so the IRF is leading the charge on that stuff. I'm of course, and we're all trying to learn as much as we can about that. It's going to take a long time. Like I think the USOC you need, or the IOC you need something like official federations in like 30 countries or something like that. And, Uh, So we got a lot of work to do, but it's definitely on our list.
1: The other thing I, so you mentioned being your own boss early on, which a lot of us always find a way to strive for. It's one of the reasons Rob and I started a podcast. We get to make our own decisions and do this. So um, as you continue to grow and all the people are seeing you, I'm, I'm assuming you've been offered buyouts and takeovers and from other bigger, larger corporations. How do you that somehow keep that integrity and say, nope, I want to stay my own boss, Take, my, stay this with our own money? Because you, you guys haven't done fundraising. You didn't do the Damon John round. So how do you balance that of like, hey, I love this and this is my passion and the money will come because I'm going to just keep doing what I do and love and we don't need other people?
2: On some days it can be difficult. Like, you know, I, like anybody, would of course love to have a mountain of cash. Yeah. Um, I have read about and just heard stories of entrepreneurs selling their company. And then some literally fight pretty deep depression because they don't know what's next. Like, you know, they had a purpose of building this company and, you know, engaging with humans and having a sense of pride of building stuff. And um, I just try to picture what my personally, what my life would look like after that. And like, you know, I didn't invent this product. So it's not like I'm a game inventor and I can just go create another thing and create something like I got incredibly lucky here. Um, don't get me wrong. I've worked my butt off, but a lot of luck and things had to fall in place to get me where I am. Um, like my kids think I'm cool. Like (laughs) I'm I'm hoping that my job is a tiny part of that, but you know, my kids' friends think like what I do is cool. And like, I don't want to be the guy that, you know, that used to run spike ball or that, you know, past tense something. So that's on the selfish part. But when I think of our 40 employees, um, everything we're doing is building for the long term. Um, you know, I literally just read this book sitting on my desk here. Lessons from Century Club Companies, Managing for Long-Term Success. And it's a book on companies that have, are literally at least 100 years old. Um So I love the idea of building a super long term, 100 year old business, I'm not going to be around to see it turn 100. But taking that long term approach. um, And you know, you know, I did talk to some VC guys and private equity guys a few years ago and thinking that may be a route that we go. but I learned that they've got a pretty short horizon, you know, from the time they invest to the time they want to sell. Is they maybe flip. Free. Yeah, they come in,
1: they change your company, they flip it and see you later. You don't, you don't even recognize your company by the time they're done with it.
2: That terrified me. And I asked them, I said, okay, you guys seem like nice guys. I'd love to work with you, but who are you going to sell to? And they're like, well, we don't know. We'll find that out down the road. And I'm like, well, what if I don't like those people? Oh, well, uh, sorry. Um, yep. So just that loss of control. And again, the thing for me, the thing that attracted me to being an entrepreneur and started my own company was having that control, being able to make those decisions. You know, I don't have a board of directors that I board of directors that I have to report to and hit a number or else. That's I have nice. the time to be able to learn what's working, what's not. Um, I have that autonomy. I want all of my employees to have that autonomy as well. I don't want them to a perfect example. I was talking to our head of sales recently. Um, he's actually my former boss from Microsoft, by the way. That's ironic. Uh,
0: That's amazing. (laughs)
2: Yeah, Awesome guy. He's like the only guy I ever kept in touch with from my previous life. And when we needed a head of sales, like Ken, come on. Um, so we're getting ready to go into a, a major retailer. Um, and, you know, I forget the exact size of the order, but it was going to be, you know, a sizable order. And the retailer reached out and said, hey, you know what, guys, if we change a couple things, we may be able to double or triple the size of this initial order. What do you think? Um, and Ken came to me and shared with me all the details. And he was like, I don't think we should do it. And I'm like, wait, head of sales coming to the CEO saying we shouldn't take an order three times the size of it? And he's like, it's too risky. This is our first time going into this retailer. They're giant. And if things go wrong, that could have a significant impact on the company. And if things go right, you know, that first order. And again, one other thing to keep in mind, of course, the retailer has some control over how sales go. But it's ultimately the consumer. So right. if the consumer buys it, then that's, when, you know, that's what we call sell-through. That's when you know you've got something that's working. So we agreed we'd stick with the initial size order. And if the, the machine's working, the future orders will come. We can be patient for that. But instilling that culture and taking that long-term perspective, um, that I think is what's going to allow us to become a Century Club company. I'm um, a member of this group called Tugboat, and we practice our businesses in a way that we consider evergreen. Um, and that's basically taking the long term. Putting people first, focusing on profit, um, you know, paced growth. Um, so, all very foreign things when you're talking about raising money or venture capital, etc. That's right for some people, but not for what I'm looking for. So, um, one of the things is our a lot of our listeners
0: are trying to enter in the workforce or they're just new to their careers. When you're hiring, right? You're high, you just hired your fortieth person. Congratulations. What are you looking for? What are some skills? uh, How do uh, young people separate themselves so that they can become an employee of uh, the rocket ship that is Spikeball?
2: Um, Well, I'll give you an example of how we hired Alyssa. She's the one that just started two days ago. Uh, She'll be making videos for us. I forget exactly how she got on our radar, but for the last three to five months, she's been a contractor, kind of doing some work for us on the side, uh, making videos. And um, you know, we'd give her a two-week deadline to make the video, and she'd turn it in a couple days early. We'd ask for whatever, and then she'd deliver. She'd go above and beyond. Um, so it was this under promise, over deliver thing. Um, you know, years ago when we hired Jack Scotty, he heads up our overall strategy and development of the sport. At the time, uh, he was working for a different company, uh, living in New York and he ran a spike ball tournament called summer spike. And it was one of the biggest tournaments every year, uh, hosted it at, um, uh, Coney Island, but not only was it the biggest, it was one of the best run. And everybody that went to tournaments anywhere in the country knew Jack, knew he was a a solid guy and ran amazing events. So when it became time for us to hire somebody to help develop the sport and make sure tournaments are run in a much more efficient fashion, we didn't post the job and say, okay, everybody come here and apply. I literally texted Jack, and I think I text, I think he accepted the job via um, text. via text. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. And I flew to New York the next day, and we had a good old time. And um, so, but showing a, a lot of people. Well, you know, I get emails all the time saying, "Will you hire me?" And they're listing all the accomplishments they've done at other jobs. I don't really care about that. I care what value can you bring to Spikeball. So Love Love it. if you're a straight A student, I don't really care. You graduated from college or you didn't. I don't care. What specific, how can you make Spikewall a better company?
1: That's, that's huge. Advice. That's, that's what you try, Like, look, it's the story you can tell, but it's like, what are you bringing to the table? Same thing with like an informational interview. Like what, why should I take my time to talk to you? What value are you bringing to the conversation on the other side of this? Right. It's not, it's gotta be a two-way street here. It's not like, Hey, I'm going to give you a job. See you later. Here's a paycheck. What value do you bring to me and to the company?
2: Love Absolutely. that. Yeah. And what, another question, I don't, I don't phrase it this way, but my essential question is what have you done that others haven't, or what makes you weird? Or, you know, uh, two of our employees, Joel and Scott, they were college roommates, uh, childhood friends, and, uh, they got the bug, the spike ball bug in college. They sent me a note saying, Hey, we love it. We'd love to work for you. Um, And um, this was back before even I went full time Um, and we swapped notes a little bit. And I said, you know, I can really use some help with customer service so I can teach you how to use our customer service ticket system. And maybe you guys could reply. Um, And they said, that's great, but we're actually going to be mushroom hunting over the next month or so. But you know, we can mushroom hunt a day and then we'll be, we'll do customer service at night. (laughs) <laughs> I, don't know how was. I was picturing two guys in the woods with a gun, like shooting mushrooms or something. Um, but I was intrigued. It was something weird and different. And I learned that in northern Michigan, there's these super rare, like Morel mushrooms, that if you go find them in the woods, you can sell them to farmers or to markets and make a ton of money. And so weird. They turned out to be terrible mushroom hunters. I don't think they found any. Um, we did customer service at night They found internet at a local coffee shop. And when it came time for graduation, there was no interview. It was, here's your jobs, gentlemen, let's do this. That's Uh, awesome. And that was in 2014 or 13. And they're both still with us. They're both now married and have families and just cool stuff. So I love weird things. I wrote years ago. When I was 24, I rode my bike from Seattle, Washington, to Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, three how, long my God. how long did that, that take you? Uh, 48 days. Oh. Um, it was awesome. I loved it. And when I you know, I had to quit a job to do it, and when I came back and started interviewing for jobs, there was one guy that you know, he could care less what was on my resume, but he was so intrigued by – this bike ride, like, why in the hell would you do that? Where did you sleep every night? And that's all he wanted to talk about. And I was like, I know we we did about 70, 75 miles a day. It was a fundraiser for the lung association. So I had to raise seven or $8,000 and we slept and we camped every night, no hotels. And, um, and he was so intrigued by that. And he saw that I was able to identify a big ass goal, uh, to go after it, to accomplish it. And, once I completed the ride then and only then did he offer actually offer me the job. And I will Once never the, forget that because it wasn't what my GPA was or what it was this weird thing that you just kind of chose to do. So I love hearing when people come and you to-
1: follow through, right? you you accomplished your goal. And he's like, that's the person I want to work for me because you, you made, you did something crazy, but it also, you, you finished it.
0: Absolutely. It's your new unique, it's your unique story that people need to tell. Well, um, Chris, we've taken up about an hour of your time and I found it extraordinarily interesting. And I know that our listeners will too. And I just want to say thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. I got to go buy a spike ball set because we got to hit the beach now that COVID's done. Oh, not that COVID's done, but hopefully COVID can be done by the time that we uh, uh, hit the beach. So uh, I'm on my way to the uh, Amazon right now. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Chris, appreciate it. done it.